firstly, I'm very grateful to No Cold War Britain for inviting me. Um, this is a very important issue to discuss and, and think about. Um, I want to start with the return of David Cameron to government because it's both a reason for hilarity and for alarm. It's a reason for hilarity and laughter because it shows how narrow is the bench of the British rulers, so limited that they have to return to the old Bullingdon elite to fill their ranks. But it's also alarm because we should not forget that it was David Cameron who shone the green light for the destruction of Libya, not unlike the behavior of his predecessor, Tony Weapons of Mass Destruction Blair. These are dangerous people. And these kinds of people working for a class that cares little about humanity often do dangerous things. Now, what makes the Camerons of the world dangerous is that they are fighting tooth and nail to defend the indefensible. The structures of neo-colonial authority no longer have the legitimacy that they once had. People in the global South who since at least the 1990s have felt under pressure to bow down before the group of seven have now produced a new mood, a new atmosphere that wants to put their national self-interest before the pretend global interest of the West. This new mood has been accelerated by the war in Ukraine and by the genocidal bombardment of the Palestinians in Gaza by the Israelis. After Russian troops entered Ukrainian territory, the United States and its NATO confederates were puzzled that the global South countries, even quite reliable allies, failed to condemn, actually not failed, refused to condemn Russia. New bold language emerged, words that had been buried for decades. South Africa's Minister of International Relations and Cooperations, Naledi Pandor, told the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, by the way, he was sitting right next to her. And she said to him that her country would not be bullied any longer. We are sovereign states, said Naledi Pandor. India's external affairs minister, S. Jay Shankar, said that India wants Russia and Ukraine to get back to dialogue and diplomacy. We make judgments in foreign policy, he said, based on what we think are our long-term interests and what is good for the world. The idea of sovereignty is key here, as is the desire amongst these rising powers to no longer be instructed by Washington about their opinions. You know, this idea that why aren't they condemning? Tell them to condemn. Send Blinken on a tour of Africa to get countries to condemn. Sorry, Blinken, those days are over. More evidence of this desire for a less suffocating world has been in evidence during Israel's bombardment of Gaza. Two actions in the United Nations illustrate this mood. First, the UN General Assembly voted 187 to two with one abstention for the United States to seize its embargo against Cuba. Only the United States and Israel voted against the resolution. And only Ukraine abstained at a time when it was very clear that the United States is one of the main funders and diplomatic backers of the wars by Israel and Ukraine. Second, in the UN Third Committee 
126 countries voted to end illegal unilateral coercive measures, including all manner of sanctions. And by the way, the Western states led by the United States all voted by themselves against that resolution. Among the 126 countries, almost the entirety of the global South. Both votes come alongside the groundswell of frustration with how the United States is enabling the Israeli war. Whether it's the 2 million people on the streets of Jakarta, Indonesia, against this war, or the 1 million people in Istanbul, Turkey, they were not just criticizing Israel, they were criticizing the United States. Just these two demonstrations, by the way, had 3 million people on the streets, just in case people have not been following the demonstrations around the world, focused only on the demonstrations in the West, pay attention to what's happening elsewhere. Massive, massive demonstrations. The fragility of US power begins with the financial crisis of 2007, 2008, and the withdrawal of US forces from Iraq and Afghanistan. Go back and listen to Syed Hassan Nasrallah of Hezbollah's speech, the first speech he gave after this October 7th, where he talked about the fact the United States was defeated in Iraq and Afghanistan. And Nasrallah said, if you keep your 72 warships in the Eastern Mediterranean, when it suits us, we can sink them. Wow, what language. Haven't heard that kind of language in a long time. Afraid of the economic rise of the global South led by China, the West has struggled to retain its power. It cannot marshal the necessary economic forces, largely because the Western elite has shrugged off its responsibility to pay taxes and contribute patriotically to their countries. And also because of the failure to drive an investment agenda, both within the West and around the world. And those of you in Britain well know the cancellation of HS2 is a case in point. You cannot even build a train line in your own country. What are you going to help the rest of the world with? Therefore, the United States and its NATO allies, because they can't push an economic agenda, are attempting to use military force to overcome their decline in authority. What the West controls is the means of destruction. U.S. military spending by itself is now at $1.537 trillion per year out of a total global military budget of $2.87 trillion. If you add to the U.S. military budget, the budget of the NATO states, $381 billion U.S. dollars, and the U.S.-dominated non-NATO military allies, Japan, South Korea, and so on, $234 billion, then the total U.S.-led military bl bloc spends $2.15 trillion a year, or 75% of world military spending, okay? Let's now discuss who is the main belligerent in the planet, who is the real terrorist in the planet. Three quarters of military spending is the Western-led military bloc. Just for comparison, China spends only 10% of the world's military spending that's 15 times less per capita than the United States, 15 times less per capita. And yet the U.S. says it's China that is out here trying to create problems. Seriously, you'd have to have lost your mind to believe U.S. propaganda. Global South countries are not keen on dividing the world into camps, but have instead said 
They want to build a collaborative agenda rooted in the UN Charter and multilateral institutions. It is the emergence of this attitude that has shaped the response of the Global South to, among other things, the violence by the Israelis against the Palestinians. No longer are these countries willing to be instructed by Washington on how to think. Men like Cameron know that the West is fragile. The West no longer fully controls finance, raw materials, and science and technology. What the West has is military force. What makes the West dangerous is that in this time of fragility, it uses this military power to try and hold on to its hegemony. Western countries would prefer to make the world like a devastated Libya than learn to collaborate as equals. Tacitus, the Roman scribe, described the battle of the Caledonians, the old Scots, their confederacy against the Romans. At one point, Tacitus writes, the Caledonian leader, Calgacus, whose name means prickly, by the way, says of the Romans, they have made a solitude and called it peace. That is the habit of imperialists. That is what we have to resist. Thanks a lot.